from The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, COVID remains the number three cause of death in the United States after heart disease and cancer, with almost 3,000 deaths every week. But Joe Biden and the Democrats are ending the federal COVID emergency. Is that really a good idea? Greg Gonsalves will comment later in the show. But first, the most important election of 2023 is in Wisconsin next month, where voters can change the state Supreme Court that's banned abortion and enforced the worst gerrymandering in the nation. Yesterday was the primary. John Nichols will report in a minute. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The single most important election before the 2024 presidential race is underway right now in Wisconsin, where liberals have an opportunity to end conservative control of the state Supreme Court, the court that has blocked abortion rights and approved the most draconian gerrymandering in America. Tuesday was the primary where liberals and conservatives each picked their candidate for the general election coming up in less than six weeks on April 4th. For comment on the primary results, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and he's co-author of the book with the wonderful title, It's Okay to be Angry About Capitalism, published just this week. We reach him today in Madison. Hi, John. Hey, it's good to be with you, John. What's the name of your co-author on It's Okay to be Angry About Capitalism? Uh, Senator Bernard Sanders. (laughs) From Vermont. Yes. Uh, We'll be talking about that book here in the next uh, week or two. Uh, We're speaking now on Wednesday morning, the day after the primary. The Wisconsin State Supreme Court is officially nonpartisan, so the four candidates in the primary were not identified by party. Let's start with the winners on each side. Democrats had united behind their candidates, so this one was no surprise. Janet Protasewicz, she will be the candidate of abortion rights and voting rights. Uh, Tell us about her victory. How big was it? It was pretty big, John. Um, Janet Protasewicz is a judge from Milwaukee. She's a longtime uh, Milwaukee County Assistant District Attorney, very deeply rooted in the state. And she got in this race relatively early and ran as a, a very clear supporter of abortion rights, of fair elections, of democracy. She she didn't say how she would rule on particular cases, but she made it clear that um, her values were progressive values. And there was another candidate in the race, uh, Judge Everett Mitchell from Dane County, which is uh, the Madison area, who also was very progressive. He did not get, uh, didn't take off as a candidate so much. But the interesting thing is, that Protosewitz got 46% of the vote, almost a majority in this four-way primary. Mitchell got about 8% more. So the overall liberal vote in this primary, which was the highest turnout um, court primary in, in you know, modern history of Wisconsin, uh, was 54%. That's pretty, that's very substantial. It's good for Protosewitz. 
in and of herself. But it's also when you add those Mitchell votes in, um, it's good for uh, progressives looking forward to the April 4 general election in the state. The Republicans, in con- in contrast, had a real contest. Their winning candidate is Daniel Kelly. I understand he's already been a Supreme Court justice. What happened with that? <laughs> Dan Kelly was on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and he uh, was appointed by former Governor Scott Walker. And prior to being on the court, he had actually represented the Republicans in the legislature when they gerrymandered the state legislature and the Congress. So it wasn't there wasn't a lot of mystery as to where he stood uh, on partisan and, and political issues. He's also extremely socially conservative. So he got appointed to the court by Walker. And then usually in Wisconsin, it's almost a given that Supreme Court justices get reelected. Um, but in 2020, in uh, the uh, April election, uh, he faced a challenger, a Dane County judge named Jill Karofsky. And um, she beat him by 150,000 votes. It was a it was a wipeout. Kelly, then when he left being a, a Supreme Court justice, when he was swept out by the voters, he went to work for the Republican Party. He became a lawyer uh, for the Republicans during the contested 2020 presidential election. Mm. So again, pretty clear where the guy's coming from. But he faced a very serious fight because uh, there was a woman, Jennifer Doro. Uh, who's a judge in Waukesha County, uh, and who, frankly, by most accounts, was a more appealing candidate. Daniel Kelly, the winner, is actually one of the biggest losers in Wisconsin politics. He lost by almost 10 percent. How significant is losing by 10 percent in Wisconsin? It's pretty significant because, as people know, Wisconsin is the most closely divided battleground state in the country. Of the last six presidential elections in Wisconsin, four have been decided by under 25,000 votes. And so to lose a spring election for Supreme Court by 150,000 or more than 150,000 votes, as Kelly did, that's pretty jaw-dropping. So why would Republicans want a candidate who was such a big loser? Why not this Jennifer Doro, who was more, more popular with the public? I understand she had presided over the trial of the guy who killed several people in the Waukesha Christmas parade. Why not Jennifer Doro? I know she was the one that the Democrats were more worried about running against. I think that's fair to say. And Jennifer Doro, uh, actually, she got in the race late. And I think that she was actually talked into running in part because people thought Kelly was a weak candidate. However, um, she was a relatively polished candidate. Uh, But the thing that probably hurt her the most is that she didn't have as much of a record as a right winger though she is very, very conservative. There's no question of that. What Kelly did was say, you know, we we haven't really seen how she rules on a lot of issues. You can't be certain. <laughs> you can't be absolutely certain that she would be a stone cold right wing judicial activist. He didn't say it in so many words, but that was basically the message. And apparently that that concern among conservative and Republican voters that that a moderate might sneak through, even if that's an electable moderate, um, was overwhelmed by the desire to have an absolute rock solid right winger um, who in 2020 had run with the endorsement of Donald Trump. So 
Kelly may be one of the biggest losers in Wisconsin, recent Wisconsin political history, but he has succeeded at one thing, getting the support of the billionaires who fund Republican candidates, the billionaires with the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Tell us about the U-Lines. Well, the U-Lines are deep-rooted in Wisconsin history, although they actually live in Illinois. Um, and so they're, they're a couple uh, who have uh, inherited immense amounts of money, massive amounts of money, and invested it apparently quite well. And so they are among the top five Republican donors in the United States. In recent years, they've given more than $230 million to conservative candidates. And they were you know, critical supporters of Ron Johnson when he ran for re-election and narrowly won in, in 2022. They have made it, Richard Uline, uh, the husband, has made it very, very clear that they're going to do whatever they can to help Dan Kelly. They clearly helped him in the primary, and Kelly had a lot of outside spending on his behalf there. And uh, Kelly has suggested at, in one interview or comment that he thinks as much as 20 million in outside spending will come into the state. Wow. Um, that won't all be for him, mind you. But and I actually think it's an underestimate. I think that you're going to see tens of millions come in. This will be without a question the most expensive Supreme Court race in the history of the United States. And that right-wing money will keep Kelly competitive. In fact, I think he'll be highly competitive. In a sense, this won't be a race between uh Janet Prosewitz and Dan Kelly. This will be a race uh, really between right and left, right? And between, you know, progressives versus right wingers, because the court in Wisconsin is currently split four three. One of the four conservatives is standing down. So if Protosewitz wins, this will be a four three liberal court. If Kelly wins, it'll be a four three conservative court. Everything comes down to that in a state where. Abortion rights will almost certainly come to the court because Wisconsin has an 1849 law that, that effectively bans abortion, where political issues of all sorts of consequence will come, especially as we move toward the 2024 presidential election, where gerrymandering is very likely to be revisited in a way that could actually end up, if you had fair maps, give Democrats several more seats in Congress, and where Scott Walker's longtime anti-labor agenda could easily be relitigated as well. So you start to see, John, that pretty much everything is at stake. So let's let's look more closely at what are the big issues in this case, uh, some specific to Wisconsin, some for the national political scene. You said abortion is coming up before the state Supreme Court and that the current law was passed in 1849. Could women vote in 1849 in Wisconsin? No, they could not, John. <laughs> and, well, that um, will be one big difference this time. Uh, yeah, that is a huge difference. And um, and it's also a huge issue. I was on the University of Wisconsin campus uh, the weekend before the primary, and I was talking to a group of young women who were at a at an event dealing with the Supreme Court race. They bluntly said, look, this is this is our referendum on abortion. Other states have referendums of that kind. Wisconsin does not. So the court race becomes really, really critical in this regard. And according to polling, you know, roughly 60% of Wisconsinites believe that abortion should be legal in all or most circumstances. This 1849 law, does it permit abortions in the case of rape or incest? No, it's a very draconian law. 
if it is upheld, it would effectively bar abortion in Wisconsin. And it's it's already had a huge impact, John. Abortion clinics in Wisconsin have, have you know, shut down. People are going to Illinois and to Minnesota to get, you know, reproductive services. Now, this is a big deal because Wisconsin has, again, been historically a pro-choice state. So this law was really thought of as a footnote. You know, it was it was something from the past that wasn't really expected to be you know, this definitional. And it may not be because this has to be interpreted by the court. So the court may well say, yeah, this law from 1849, which wasn't applied for 50 years after Roe, doesn't stand. If that's the case, then Wisconsin will will have abortion rights. Um, On the other hand, if you've got a a social conservative court that says, um, no, the 1849 law stands, and if they uphold it as it's written, the potential for you know Wisconsin to have some of the most stringent restrictions on abortion rights uh, becomes very real. And the other big one with national significance is gerrymandering. Wisconsin has eight seats in the House. How are they divided between the parties now? And what would be an equitable division of those eight seats? Well, Wisconsin's a pretty much an evenly divided state. As I said, in presidential elections, the last six of them, four divided by under 25,000 votes. Our governorship is, you know, usually decided by, you know, like 51 or 52 to 48, 49. These are close, close contests. And that's that's just the truth of Wisconsin. But our congressional delegation is currently 6-2 Republican. And um, in the legislature, by the way, it's even more overwhelming. So it's, uh, these the, the Republicans have gerrymandered these seats pretty radically. Uh, an equitable distribution would be a 4-4. Wisconsin is a competitive state. It swings back and forth. And so in a good year for Democrats, it might even end up as a 5-3 for the Democrats. In a good year for Republicans, yeah, you could end up with a 5-3 for the Republicans. Now, here's the big deal. How closely is Congress divided, John? Pretty darn close right now. So if you ended up with a fair map out of Wisconsin, just a competitive map that gave Democrats the opportunity to win, you know, as many as as, uh, four seats, a substantial portion of the Republican majority in the House of Representatives could be lost in Wisconsin alone. Wow. Well, I understand that 92 percent of Wisconsin voters are white. And this makes white women the largest single demographic block in Wisconsin. Democrats want to focus their efforts for the next uh, six weeks on white women. And the other key Democratic constituency is uh, students. I heard that Wisconsin has 320,000 college students. That's many times what they need for the margin of victory uh, in the state Supreme Court. Yeah, you're, you're getting a clear picture of Wisconsin. So here's the way that that a progressive candidate wins in Wisconsin. And you can't underestimate uh, the importance of the black vote in Milwaukee. The fact of the matter is that Milwaukee is a, a city with a very, very large uh, black and Hispanic population. And there's a couple other cities, uh, Beloit, Racine and others. So you have to mobilize that black vote. That is that cannot be underestimated. That's an important part of this equation. And then you get a very you know, you get a pretty progressive vote out of Madison. But as you point out, swing voters in Wisconsin, or the voters that potentially could, could decide this race, uh, tend to be, uh, there's a lot of suburban women. There are also a lot of rural women who, if abortion becomes a very central issue, and I think it will be a central issue in this, in this race, that could have a profound impact. And 
what we know, this final element of the students, what we know is that among young women uh, and young men, to be quite blunt, uh, there's overwhelming support for abortion rights. And so if you can mobilize students, that is clearly going to have a huge impact. And I will tell you one of the interesting things in the primary. Now, imagine this. In the primary election, almost a million people voted on, on Tuesday. Um, that's compared to, you know, previous primaries where, you know, it was dramatically less. 705,000 was the previous yeah. record I read. Yeah. And this excitement is already there. And the campus turnout in Madison, but also in outstate campuses like University of Wisconsin and up at Eau Claire and Northwestern Wisconsin was high proportionally. Not it wasn't overwhelming, but it was significant. And so I do think what you're going to see huge amount of uh, outside money coming in for the Republicans to do TV ads. I think what you're going to see is progressive groups doing a tremendous amount of mobilization on the ground in Milwaukee, Racine, Beloit, city, those cities also on the campuses around the state. And that's that's really going to be critical. And then, you know, we'll see how the Milwaukee suburbs go. This is one of the interesting things. The candidate who lost in the primary, Jennifer Doro, was very, very popular in the Milwaukee suburbs. She's not there. Now you're going to have a, a man running against a woman, and the woman is clearly pro-choice. Uh, that's That's profound, and that could have a huge impact. One last thing. How long do state Supreme Court justices serve in Wisconsin once they're elected? They get 10 years, John, uh, a decade. And they also historically uh, get reelected, unless you're Dan Kelly. <laughs> John Nichols in Madison. We'll be talking about this again in the next 41 days. You can read John's reports at thenation.com. Thank you, John. We needed you. Thank you. <laughs> at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The official COVID emergency is ending. Next week, California, the biggest and bluest state, will end its emergency. And at the end of next month, the federal law allowing people to stay on Medicaid will expire. The last day of the federal emergency COVID funding will be May 11th. Is this really a good idea? For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He works on epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for 30 years, and he writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic. He's also a 2018 MacArthur Fellow. Greg, welcome back. Hi, John. Glad to be here. You've said numbers don't lie. I looked up the numbers. COVID remains the number three cause of death in the United States, exceeded only by heart disease and cancer. About 3,000 people die of COVID in the United States every week. The weekly total for new cases last week was about 260,000. At the beginning of the pandemic, you criticized the government, of course, headed by Trump at that time, for not taking action during a health crisis. Now you have a new criticism. 
when President Biden got elected or, or when he campaigned for the, for the job, he said, I'd follow the science. And implication was that he was going to be different than President Trump in his response to the pandemic. And all signs were good for the first few months, but I think there was a political imperative which overrode sort of common sense about public health and that um, people were tired already as he began his term uh, of all the restrictions and all the sort of claims being made on them. And he decided to turn the corner. Not that the virus was cooperating, but he decided it was time to put COVID behind us. And so by the summer of 2021, you know, he talked about our independence from COVID for, for July 2021. And, you know, by the end of 2021 into 2022, really all they could talk about was it being a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And there was really little talk of masks or ventilation or a, a whole host of other things we might do to keep ourselves safe. Um, it was all about your personal choice to get vaccinated. And if you didn't do it, you're, you're almost a bad American. But the virus hasn't cooperated. Um, as you described, the, the, the death toll in the United States has been consistently um, about 400, 500 deaths per day over the past few weeks, meaning we have a 9-11 every, every week or so. Um, and so we are in a situation where nobody really cares about the pandemic, including the folks in the White House, yet death and suffering persist. The rationale officially given for ending the federal COVID emergency by Biden's National COVID Response Coordinator was that we are, quote, in a better place and that we, quote, are getting through the winter without a big surge and that, quote, we have the tools to manage this crisis, close quote. I think you agree that we have the tools, vaccines, Paxlovid. The tools aren't the problem. Well, first of all, Dr. Jha has a very short memory because if you remember around Christmas time, we were talking about the triple-demic of RSV, flu, and, and COVID, and our emergency rooms and our hospitals were sagging under the weight of, of three, three diseases that were, were sending people to the hospitals in droves. We still have um, hospital capacity issues going into January. So the idea that we didn't see a surge is not true. Did we see a surge of the, the kind we saw the winter before when Omicron hit? Of course we didn't. But to say there was not a pileup in hospitals in the end of 2022 going into 2023 is, is incorrect. We do have the tools. We have vaccines. We have Paxlovid and other treatments. We have tests to, to, to tell if you're infected with the virus. But, you know, we don't have equitable access to it. First of all, we have very low booster rates in the United States. Um, we already know that access to Paxlovid uh, is not what anybody wants, including the administration. Um, and it's getting harder and harder to reach those tools. You know, if you have the resources and you have health insurance in particular, you know, you're, you're pretty well set up to get what you need. But again, many, many people have said vaccine-only approaches are not sufficient to control the pandemic. Even as late as November of last year, a group in Nature magazine, which is no sort of, you know, partisan outlet, it's a, one of the leading scientific magazines in the world, published a consensus statement from around 400 scientists, clinicians, and public health experts saying, you know what, you need a comprehensive approach to the virus that combines all the things we've been talking about, non-pharmaceutical interventions, environmental controls like changing ventilation in, in buildings and in public transportation, in addition to vaccines, tests, and treatment. But everybody is basically saying, if you can afford to get your, your shot, if you can afford to 
to figure out how to get Paxlovid and you can get tested and you can afford to stay home when you're sick, maybe you'll weather the storm, but that's not even true. We know that long COVID, even if some of the estimates are overstated, still is going to affect millions and millions of Americans, which both has economic costs and physical costs for people in terms of long-term disability that are going to persist into the years ahead. Let's go back a step. The first declaration of a national COVID emergency came in March 2000, two months after Biden took office. What did it mean to declare a COVID emergency and how adequate was that initial declaration of Biden's? The COVID emergency allowed the government to do certain things. Um, One is it allowed regulatory flexibility and access to Medicare and Medicaid for millions of Americans. It allowed us to approve vaccines and other interventions on emergency use authorizations. It it put into place provisions for telehealth um, for people who couldn't simply get to see a doctor even if they had the ability to to pay for it. Um, And so there were a whole bunch of regulatory flexibilities put into place at the beginning of the pandemic, which will now get lifted uh, in May when, when the pandemic emergency ends. Also in the beginning, all 50 states issued their own COVID emergency declarations. But of course, in the red states where Republicans rule, those emergency declarations were allowed to expire. For example, Florida let its expire in June 2021. Since then, the death rate from COVID in Florida has been double that of California, where the emergency is still in effect. So I guess that state policies, as well as federal, were critical to keeping people alive or letting them die of COVID. Well, I have no love for Governor DeSantis, but let's talk about Governor Hochul in New York State, who lifted the mask mandate in healthcare facilities last week or two weeks ago. Eric Adams, who's the mayor of New York City, one of the bluest cities you can get, lifting the vaccine requirement for, for workers, city workers, um, including public public-facing professions like education and healthcare. And so, you know, while some of the red states might have led the way in sort of dropping provisions to, to protect their, their citizens and residents from, from COVID-19, blue states have sort of followed the lemmings off the cliff in terms of backing away from pandemic protections, even as we speak. Your article for The Nation highlights another feature that I didn't know about, and I think most people don't know about. At the end of March, states will kick people off Medicaid do we know how many people this is going to be and, and what will happen to them and their health coverage? What's interesting is that not tied to the, the end of the public health emergency, in the final budget reconciliation package at the end of last year, the House leader, Nancy Pelosi, the majority leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, along with the White House, decided to, to rescind, as of March, this ability to let people can be continuously enrolled in Medicaid under the emergency provisions um, that were established earlier, early in the pandemic. Kaiser Family Foundation is fantastic because they have a lot of briefs on their website um, at kff.org about what happens when, when the public health emergency ends and when the continuous enrollment provision Medicaid ends. They were saying several million people are, are gonna lose their uh, access to Medicaid. And what's interesting is, is in, in other studies, when people lose access to Medicaid, it isn't that they, they jump onto some other form of insurance. They end up being uninsured for, for a, a year or so. And so what we're seeing is that we're gonna see the end of the public health emergency, which has made it much easier to get test treatments, vaccines through Medicare and Medicaid, the entire sort of package of emergency provisions, including the continuous enrollment in, in Medicaid, has put millions of people on into the health insurance world. Fairly a third of Americans were covered by Medicaid over the past three years. We're not going to have the federal government paying for, 
for certain parts of, of our toolbox of, of interventions for, for COVID-19 under these new, this brave new world after the pan, pandemic health emergency ends. Um, and for those who had insurance, um, they're unlikely to, to, to find ways to get, get insured over the, over the next few weeks and months as they scramble to figure out an alternative to their Medicaid enrollment as states can now sort of boot them off even as, as early as next month. California has a, has a better situation than nationally. The state recently passed at least two laws. One forces insurers to keep covering COVID care, Paxlovid mostly, even after the state and, and federal emergency orders expire. And a second new state law in California requires insurers to keep reimbursing members' costs for up to eight over-the-counter COVID tests per month. And this has an expiration date of November 11th. So there's, you know, six more months to go in California of free test kits and requiring insurance companies to cover uh, COVID care. And if you're in California, you're, you're in good shape. But how many of those states are going to follow through with sort of new provisions to lock in um, easier access to these interventions? Uh, once the public health emergency ends. And also remember what's important to say is that these tools, vaccines, Paxlovid and other treatments and tests are not everything we need to keep ourselves safe. I had COVID once late in, in, in 2022. I do not want it again. Um, the risk of, of long COVID notwithstanding, it, it's a disruption to our lives. It's a disruption to those we love and those who may be high risk in our, in our families and friendship networks. And so even in what California is, is doing, and, and, and it should be praised, the climate of risk out there right now with mask mandates lifting, you know, we need to upgrade ventilation in our buildings and in, in public transportation, none of it's really happening. Um, and so as we're seeing the public health emergency evaporate, the Medicaid provision evaporating next month, we've also seen sort of all these things undergirding our, our protection from risk sort of evaporating one by one as red states, blue states, all states sort of drop mask mandates, vaccine mandates, et cetera, uh, creating much more risk out there for the long term. And then there's Moderna and Pfizer, producers of the, the good vaccines. What's, what are they going to do with the end of the federal emergency? Well, it's interesting because um, when I wrote the article for The Nation, you know, both of them had said, gee, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. We're going to increase <laughs> the price of the vaccine by 400 percent price gouging for our times. The interesting thing is Moderna, of course, had billions of dollars from the U.S. government to help develop that vaccine. So it's your, it's your vaccine and my vaccine, along with Moderna's. And, um, you know, the White House has been hemming and hawing, but really did did nothing to sort of pressure Moderna to, to or Pfizer to do anything different. Moderna has, has said, oh, you know, we're going to, I think recently has said, you know, we'll continue to supply things at cost, you know, for those who need it, et cetera. Um, the, the point is, is that what were they even thinking? You know, <laughs> what were they even thinking to, to boost prices by 400% when it's already an expensive vaccine to begin with? It really takes a lot of chutzpah to raise the price by 400% in the middle of a pandemic, just as public protections and public support and subsidies for these tools are, 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 are evaporating into thin air. And just for a minute, we'd like to talk about the situation outside the United States. How does the death rate in the United States, even with the federal mandate in effect, compare with other advanced countries? And what about the countries that aren't so advanced? COVID is the number three leading cause of death worldwide. It's still incredibly, incredibly deadly around the world. We have millions of cases, millions of deaths. 
in terms of excess deaths per capita and COVID mortality per capita, the US is up at the top of the leaderboard with its G7 peers. So we do terribly, even with the tools that Dr. Zha says we have at our disposal, even under the protests that things are a lot better than they were, we're still having among the most deadly epidemics still into year four of this pandemic. When you look at the rest of the world, you know we have vast numbers of people, billions of people who are unvaccinated around the world. And we see excess deaths and COVID mortality reaching those places as well. What's interesting is that um, it's hard to tell because of COVID reporting what's going on in many different places, but it doesn't seem like rich countries like the US, uh, middle-income countries like Brazil, you know, more advanced upper middle income countries like China are being protected by the virtue of vaccination. We're seeing, you know, excess mortality persist, COVID mortality persist into year four, just as sort of people's interest and political will has evaporated to, to combat this pandemic. Greg Gonsalves, you can read his article, Biden's ending of the COVID emergency is a public health disaster at thenation.com. Greg, thanks for talking with us today. I always love talking with you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.